0: Good morning. It's always good to be back, and uh, especially good to be back during Christmas time. I know I have lots of fond memories uh, growing up here, and uh, just sharing Christmases um, from the the giant tree in the back to to Christmas concerts, to candy bags and and all that stuff. And uh, that for sure was a, a highlight for me um, of the year. And Christmas always seemed to be, especially uh, in my family, that it was, I mean, yeah, it's marked on your calendar when you, when you buy it, but it was a special day on the calendar. It was, a, it was a once a year, right? This is a culmination almost of the year. It felt like that was the, the start and the end of the, of the year. And um, I think we can all agree that, that Christmas is a really special time. And you can, you can look at all the things that we do. Um, there's special food and there's special songs and there's, there's tons of diff- different special things that we do. And um, <clears throat> all of that kind of adds up into this, this season, a season all of its own. And all of that stuff is good stuff. And, and I know we get carried away. We, we don't feel like it's really Christmas if, if there's not snow on the ground. And, you know, kids often associate Christmas, like Jamie was saying, with the presents. We realize that. Um, and we try and, and, you know, we celebrate and, and sometimes pull out all the stops in the celebrating. Um, but then do have to remind ourselves of what it's all about. But all that stuff is good stuff, right? Nobody's going to say the family gatherings or all the good food, all that. None of that's a, a bad thing. And it's caught on, in a sense, because it's a special time for, for lots and lots of people. And I'm going to put special maybe in quotations at this point, because we do really weird stuff at Christmas. I don't know if you noticed this. Um, I don't know what eggnog's all about, to be honest. I don't know where it came from, but we get that once a year. Uh, lights, reindeer, Santa, candy canes, elves, right, we we have a lot of interesting things that we do at Christmas as well as just kind of wrapped up in this now holiday season. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I have a feeling if we surveyed, there's at least one or two of us out there that have, have gone overboard in one area or another. You know, maybe you're the family that puts up just an obscene amount of lights because that's what you feel you should do, or... Um, you bake a you know your, your Christmas supper that actually probably feeds about three times the amount of people that are going to be there and it 's not as though these are again bad things but it 's a it 's a different type of atmosphere and you can tell that on the way that that we act and and it 's really interesting that that the season itself you know has has a bit of a life of its own and I think um, that That difference, I mean, and it's noticeable in society. Uh, I'll give you a couple couple instances where you can tell that we definitely act different around Christmas. The first is that if you look at statistically the amount of of giving, so charitable donations and things, it's much, much higher at Christmas than at any time of the year. And maybe that's just due to our, you know, overall good feelings at Christmas, or maybe it causes us to reflect, but we act a little bit differently. And I'm not going to name the political party, but some of them take that as an advantage to call you when you're having a family gathering just this last week to ask for donations. Maybe you got this call as well. I thought that was really nice of them to wish me a Merry Christmas. But, <laughs> but we also, you know, that aside, the, the acting different, um, we do often, and whether that's lots of lights or, or turkey, etc., we act differently and sometimes in really interesting ways. I'll give you a personal example of how this played out in my family, because if you haven't heard this, this story, I, I feel it should be told. Um, my family always, and I don't know why, traditionally we, we celebrated our, our Christmas and our gift opening um, after the Christmas Eve service here at church. And so we'd finish the Christmas Eve ser- service, then we'd go home and, and open up all our gifts and you know stay up to who knows when, playing with those things and, and watching really old movies. But... <clears throat> Um as I grew up, uh my brother and sister, uh, my oldest two went to MCI. And so when they were home for Christmas, it felt like a family again and and back then, uh even though we were farmers, back then farmers didn't do as much winter work as it seems you guys are doing these days. And so dad was was often fairly free over the Christmas holidays as well. And I remember one year specific, we were all home and everybody was there. Um and already enjoying the holiday season. And it was the 22nd of December. I remember this specifically because we were sitting around and talking and us kids came up with a little bit of a plan because you know, we, had, we had decided amongst ourselves that, well, if we're all here, I mean, we could really get Christmas you know, moving, right? Those, those presents aren't going to unwrap themselves and why, why would we wait you know, another two full days to do that? And so, like many kids do, they ask if they can open their gifts. And I don't know what was special about this year, but for some reason the, the Christmas, um, I don't know, not to call it strangeness, but that, that Christmas spirit was, was flowing in our household. And the excitement was wrapped up in more than just the kids. Because usually that would be met with, you know, we'll just wait, you know, we'll, we'll enjoy games, and we'll, we'll do various activities. But, for some reason, on this 22nd of December, um, the kids somehow touched on a Christmas feeling in my mother that I haven't seen before. And my mother, that, that evening, and I'm not sure if exactly the dialogue, but my mother said something to the effect of, you know, that's not a bad idea. And that little hint of positive this could actually happen um, there was a bit of a hysteria in the house, and within about an hour, we were sitting around with open gifts, and we, uh, we enjoyed Christmas on the 22nd of December for no other reason than we didn't need to wait. That was the, <laughs> that was the, the Christmas I remember. And what I loved about that Christmas was uh, just that feeling, and again, that, that piece of the year that you you'd only get to experience once a year. We're all at home, and... We're all sharing in good times and um, singing songs and good food. And to be together, um, that part made the Christmas. And so, you know, whether we had opened our gifts then or the 24th, it didn't really matter. But it was that extended time just to be able to spend time with our families. And, you know, now as I, as I get older and I have kids of my own, I, I recognize how important that is and, and how hard that must be, you know, for families that are away. For families that lose members, um, for broken families, and that does, you know, I, I say an extra prayer for those families because I have such a powerful and such a great time that can be, and and so, um, yeah, it's obvious that that Christmas is such a a special time, and everyone around here would probably agree that Christmas is a special time, but but special doesn't really, it doesn't really sum it up, and it doesn't really doesn't actually capture what that means to a Christian. This season isn't just special. From a Christian's perspective, this is, this is world-changing. Right? This, is, this has an eternal significance. And this season is to be celebrated to the max because of the amazing event that took place. So, even though we're a couple of days removed um, from what we uh, celebrate as Christ's birthday... I wanted to look at um, the various names that we gave this this Christ child. And uh, first off, and I'm going to flip back and forth a little bit, but um, I'm going to go to Isaiah to begin with, because in Isaiah 9, verse 6, you get a good listing, and probably the, the hallelujah chorus is going to ring through your heads, but I'll read this one out for you. <clears throat> for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And all of these are very apt and appropriate names for this baby. Because even though he started in very humble beginnings, the greatness of this child um, was obvious, and that all of these names are great and perfect descriptions of that. And I don't know why, but uh, in this Christmas and, and thinking about this this Sunday, the name Emmanuel came to me more often than not. And I, I was a little bit curious, to be honest, because I knew, I guess, you know, been taught many times that Emmanuel means God with us. And it's another name for Christ. To be honest, in my, I guess, slight ignorance, I thought it was actually still part of this passage. I was like, well, oh, it's just another one of those names. And then when I started to do some research on Emmanuel, I found some things that I, I didn't expect to find. And I thought, you know what, what a, good, um, what a good choice to discuss the name Emmanuel, because this is actually the post-Christmas reality. All of the other names have to do with, you know, what he'll become or, or you know, the coming of the Lord and, and his place. But Emmanuel is the literal God with us. And with this birth of of Jesus, the significance of God actually coming down to be with us is one that I think we we should maybe stop and and contemplate a little more often because of how crazy that actually is. And so I wanted to look at the actual word Emmanuel and the actual name. And so I started doing some study and looking through some commentaries, looking up different things and... And wanted to see where this all came into place because to most Christians, this is a name that is that's pretty common. It's not as though you, you wouldn't run across it. So, in my study, I found that it occurs in the Bible all of three times. A total of three times is the, the name Emmanuel used. I thought that was kind of interesting. There's one in Matthew, which was the scripture we read, and then there's two um, kind of back to back in Isaiah. And for me, initially, I thought, well, that's kind of strange. You'd think that something so fundamental and so huge that that would be talked about more often or used more often. Why would the name Emmanuel only show up a total of three times in the Bible? The concept of God being with us and coming down for us, that that means everything to us as Christians. That's our Savior. That's our Messiah. How come that didn't actually get a more prominent, let's say, name for Jesus in the Bible. So I want to go back to the, that verse in Matthew. So Matthew 1, to 23 says, um, in talking about Jesus' birth, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means god with us. And that's pretty straightforward. That's the one we we've, we've heard many times and maybe can even recite. And it's in direct re- reference to Isaiah. So the other passage you want to look at if you still hopefully you still have your fingers in Isaiah because just flipping back a couple chapters that's a direct reference to Isaiah 7:14. And I did a lot of study on this passage because it It intrigued me, and it actually confused me for a while, so I'll I'll let you know what I found out. Here, God is trying to direct Ahaz, the king of Judah, and Ahaz is not exactly cooperating. Better yet, he's not really listening. And so God is is telling him through the the prophet that he should be asking for a sign. And Ahaz has, has the gall and the ignorance to say, that he doesn't want to bother God or test God with a sign. You know, he's quite pious that way. And yet, the prophet comes back and says, well, if you're not going to listen, then I'm going to show you a sign. And so I'm going to read this passage here, Isaiah 7. Um, I'll go about 10 to 14. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, 'Ask uh, ask a sign for yourself. From the Lord your God, make it as deep as shoal, as high as heaven. But Ahaz, Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, it is, too slight a thing for you, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And if you've read through this passage or studied through this, you can say, oh, that's there. That's interesting. There's there's the reference to Jesus, and so Jesus will be the the sign, uh, you know, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, but when in my reading, I got kind of confused because apparently biblical scholars don't entirely agree on this one. Because if you read a few verses later, it actually talks about um, when the child is, is, well, basically the age of, of three or four, this will come about. And it even references... Um, a a time period. And so we're at 700 years before Jesus came. And I'm not going to get into a theological debate this morning, but basically the question was, did Isaiah even know that he was talking about Christ? And some scholars don't totally agree on this one. Now, to me, to be honest, when I did all this study, I I came to the conclusion that it it didn't really matter. um, Because what Isaiah was talking about was maybe a, a localized time period, depending on how you look at it. And if you look at the next verse, or sorry, the next chapter, 8, verse 8, it might confuse you even more because then it references Emmanuel as a person that potentially was there at that time, again, due to some interpretation. But that is the, the, the only other reference to the word or the name Emmanuel in the, in the Bible. So even if we don't totally agree... Um, the one thing that I found out was that in Matthew's use of that passage, he was aware that those words were maybe even more prophetic than Isaiah thought they were. Isaiah in chapter 9 talks very, very literally about the coming of Christ. And Matthew um, pulls out the idea that, you know what, when you were talking about this, uh, this prophecy... And this Emmanuel, that wasn't just the name of a child. That was a literal God-with-us child. It's not a God-is-going-to-be-with-us-because-of-this-child. It was God-is-with-us-through-this-child. And that is where Matthew picks up on on this, this passage, and that's why he used the name Emmanuel. The interesting part, I guess, for me was that Matthew is the only gospel to include the name Emmanuel. And it seems odd, right, that the idea of God with us, if this is really God's son and he has come down in flesh, that this would be a a prominent piece or a prominent name in all of the gospels. But Matthew included it specifically. Well, Matthew includes a few things specifically. There's nine things that I found that Matthew included that the other gospels don't. And I won't run through them all. But essentially, what they are um, are fulfillments of prophecies and very significant things, uh, learnings or teachings, images to the Jewish people. Because Matthew's gospel was specifically to the Jews. And so he included things there that he knew that they would need to hear to be able to convince them. And Matthew thought, not to put words in Matthew's mouth, but in the inclusion, it seems as though Matthew pulled out the name Emmanuel, because not only is this a significant event, and not only do they, the Jews believe that this, that, well, obviously Jesus was a person and a real person, Matthew was bringing out the idea that this isn't just any person, this is the God with us person that Isaiah had prophesied about. And so it kind of comes full circle many, many, many years later um, in the fact that this prophecy now is fulfilled just in the fact that Matthew points out that the name Emmanuel can be applied to this baby. And so, again, I'm not trying to get into a a theological debate about it, but I thought it was really interesting the fact that um, the word is only used because it was basically to kind of prove a point. So, what he was saying about Jesus was the fulfillment part. So, what about the reality of Emmanuel? If anything, I guess we gotta go back to the Christmas story itself. And uh, Christian and non-Christian alike could probably recite a pretty good portion of the Christmas story. Right? From, from shepherds to wise men to stars, etc. They could probably get some names and locations right. And I think if anything, we've done as a culture is we, we've definitely over-romanticized this, the Christmas story. It's been, a, it's been a really kind of a feel-good story that's attached with the season. And I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a feel-good story. It's a great story. But the reality of this story uh, is probably a little messier than we imply it to be, right? We often see the picture, and you'll see the nativity scene, and everybody's very, you know, happy or, or glowing, and there's baby Jesus lying in a nice little manger, and he's swaddled, and, and he's, you know, this, this lovely type of environment, when, if you think about it, I mean, to be born in a manger wouldn't be a great thing. That's not an ideal location for giving birth. Um, The manger, the stable, that would be a a dirty place at best. With animals and the tight environment, it's going to be a smelly place at best. And although it says in the the popular song Away in a Manger that no crying he makes, I can't find a scriptural reference to say that baby Jesus did not cry. So I have a feeling that it would be loud at best as well with all the animals and the baby crying. And this is probably a pretty stressful time for Joseph and Mary. Just, I'm just guessing. If I had to, you know, help my wife give birth to our, our firstborn in a manger in a town that we weren't in, uh, you know, from, I, that's not going to be the, the best of scenarios. And it's not as though you need to, to bring all, all the realism into the story. But because we make it such a, a feel-good story with such beautiful imagery it gets kind of over-romanticized as a story. But, like, if you think about it for a second, and if you look at the the relevance here of the actual story, this is, like, it's beyond momentous event that's taking place. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened. Might date myself here a little bit, but when I was in high school, uh, there was a song by Joan Osborne, called One of Us. And Now it's probably ringing through some of your heads. But uh, the basic premise and part of the, the song basically says, actually the, the chorus basically says, what if God was one of us? And it, bear with me, this is not theologically sound. But it says, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus, trying to make his way home? And the whole purpose of the song was trying to, to go through, like, um, you know, what if it was just another person? What if God was just another person and he was beside you on the bus? And what would you do? What would you say? Etc. And it's a very loose and not very irreverent way of looking at it. But it's not great theology, but it's a really good question. And sometimes I think, you know, what if what if we were there back then? What if you were the innkeeper? What if you were the shepherds? What if you were the, the wise men? Would the, would the impact, would the magnitude of that event actually hit home with you? Would that, or would you be, you know, would you be the the hundreds of other people around in the village who didn't really think anything of it or heard that that baby's a king and, and kind of laugh at those odd people who are worshiping the baby? Would the impact of that event sit with you? What if God was actually one of us? Could you look at that baby and say, wow, God came down to be with us? There's another portion of the the song that I wanted to read because it's it's a bit telling. In one of the verses um, in this song, she says, If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe? And I don't know where Joan Osborne is in her faith journey, but she's obviously contemplated a few of these things. And Again, I just want to go back to the fact that the reality of Emmanuel is that God is with us. And I don't know if I could say that emphatically enough from here, you know, because we've heard it so many times. But I'm going to let that just kind of simmer with you throughout the day and throughout the week. That this event, through all its, its joy and its, its holiday spirit is a commemoration of the fact that God actually came down to spend time with us. And that, to me, the more I studied, just kind of blew me away. The other part I really like about the story is that that it was perfect. And I know that Jewish people at the time, and, and the fulfillment of prophecy that they were hoping for, this Messiah, this Savior, this King, um, most likely hoping for a a king riding in on horse that was going to be a warrior to end all wars and he was going to control. And the the imagery of power and might, you know, of a a saviour was probably at the top of everyone's list because fighting back then was just a part of life, constantly being taken over, trying to fight for your land, your freedom, your protection. And for somebody to have that security, right, the saviour to come and save you from all that trouble and that harm I'm pretty sure the imagery that that they had in their minds was of the, the biggest and the strongest of people. When God comes to see us, when this Messiah comes down, he's going to take over everything, and he's going to make sure that we are safe and we are under his control. And there he came. Not even be able to support his own life as a human being. Right? A humble baby in a manger. And even for those who are hoping for the Messiah, I'm sure that there was at least a few that heard about the king. Really, the king is coming? Really, the king is here? And realized that they're talking about a baby who'd been born to just average people in a manger. There's probably just a little bit of disappointment of, oh, that's not what I was hoping for. But I love how perfect that story is. Because the story was directed and... and Created by God, to use the lowliest of people, to use the humblest of humans, to be a savior for all, not by taking over with force, but becoming to be a servant of all. And I love how the Christmas story has Christ as, as, as savior, as just the tiniest of insignificant humans at the time. Now, I'm going to come full circle as well with the idea that Emmanuel, for some reason, only shows up three times in the Bible. And that seems, wow, why is that such a small, small portion? It's such a huge theme. How could it, how could it be represented so seldomly in the Bible? Well, not to spoil it, but that isn't the only three times. It's the only three times that you actually see the word and the name Emmanuel. But let's, go, let's look at it from a different way. On the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is one of the most famous paintings of all time. It is The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. And if you've seen this one, it's the the half-dressed, kind of plump Adam sitting there with his limp finger while God reaches down from the clouds and is trying to touch his his finger. And in reading about this painting, um, it's an interesting imagery because One person who was analyzing the painting said, if you look at the different characters, it's really telling about what Michelangelo perhaps was trying to tell us about our relationship with God. Because God, if you look at him in the picture, stretched out of the clouds, reaching as far as he can with an outstretched arm, and you can see the, the urgency to try and touch the human. And you can tell that his love for the human, his desire to be with that human is great. That is, that is what he's trying to portray, how greatly God wants to be there with the human. And on the flip side of it, if you look at the human, Adam is relaxed in the picture, his arm slightly bent, his finger pointing barely in the direction. And it was telling of the fact that in our relationship with God, God's desire to be with us will always be immensely more than our desire to be with him. And it's a bit humbling to think of, you know, as much as as we want to be with God and as as much as um, we want Him to be our Savior, we can't possibly match the amount of desire that He has to be in relationship with us. And this, again, is where I'm going to come full circle because God's desire is to be with man. And that's exactly how it plays out throughout all of Scripture. And even though we talk about the word and the name Emmanuel, the theme of God with us is from page one to, I don't know how many there are, to be honest, <laughs> to the end. And you basically see this God with us type of theme all the way from the Old to the New Testament through all different characters. I'll give you a few. I'm going to flip around a little bit right now just to give you the passages. Um, but I'm going to start in Genesis. In Genesis 3.9 after Adam and Eve have sinned. They heard the sound of of Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? Because he was seeking for Adam and Eve. In Exodus 3, 11 and 12, Moses is trying to get out of uh, his calling of relieving his people from Egypt. So Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said gently, Certainly I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall wor- worship God at this mountain. And immediately after Moses was Joshua. Joshua. And Joshua had similar feelings. How can I possibly do this task that you asked me to do? Joshua 1, 1-5. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of, of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all his people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this... Sorry, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea, toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. And if we really wanted to... To flip through passages all day, you could look up Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, David, and so on and so on. The amount of times that the Bible talks about um, God's presence with us or direct statements from God that I will be with you is countless. And then is the literal Emmanuel. And although the word and the name is used for only one person, the theme is spread throughout. This time of year, we get to celebrate Emmanuel. This was the literal God with us. And so even throughout all the promises, promises to be with um, Moses and uh, Joseph and Mary and David and all the other ones, we do actually get a literal God with us. And the amazing time that it must have been to actually have... God fully as man. But it even goes further than that. Because fulfillment of prophecy would be, yeah, here is actual God with us. See, I you know, the fulfillment is here, Jesus has come down, this is my presence um with you. But if you flip to Matthew twenty eight, verses sixteen to twenty, this is the great commission for the disciples. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So even Jesus' disciples got the same promise that he was going to be with them, even if that wasn't um, in his physical body, he was going to be with them. And at this time of year we talk about a story that happened many, many years ago. But this promise was for us as well. So I'll flip you one more time to John fourteen, sixteen to eighteen. In John fourteen, sixteen to eighteen, we talk about the spirit. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the, word, sorry, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and we will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And it was satisfying enough for me, I suppose, that although initially I was a bit... Confuses why the, the, the term Emmanuel or that name would be so seldom throughout the Bible. That I encountered more, more passages that dealt with the concept of, of Emmanuel than I actually imagined. It comes up over and over again, and I picked out just a, a number that, you know, the highlights for me. But that passage and that idea that God would be with us was nothing new, it was a promise right from the beginning. And so, Jesus is that literal fulfillment of Emmanuel, but it's much, much bigger than that. We see it all the way from the Old Testament to Jesus, and then to the Spirit that abides with us, so that God constantly is with us. Emmanuel is a promise spread throughout Scripture, and it's really a fitting name for Jesus. He got a lot of names, and lived up to all of them. But Emmanuel is one that, at this time of year, um, should mean a lot to us. Because this should be the biggest celebration ever. Emmanuel is the best gift ever. The best thing that could ever happen did happen. And it happened to you. Merry Christmas.